Welcome to the Jay and Pav Podcast Experience. Listening to the Che and Pav Show, teachers talking teaching. Where two middle school teachers sharing our reflections, insights about the topics that matter the most in the classroom. So hey, Pav, join us in the hallway or even the parking lot, or better yet, how about the staff room? Welcome to episode 100 of the Staff Room Podcast, or as we like to call it, the Chain Pav Show. It's been almost two and a half years since we started the Staff Room Podcast, and during this time, Che and I have grown exponentially as teachers, as podcasters, and as human beings. In this episode, we celebrate the last two and a half years and talk about some of the ways we have grown the most. So let's get into the show. My name is Pav, Wander Woman Wander, half of the hosting team of the Che and Pav show. And I'm joined by my co-host, who will continue to introduce himself. Start spreading the news. Che and Pav are 100 today. Oh, and by 100, I'm 65 and you're 35. <laughs> yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> you, you'll take my math because it was on point for once. <laughs> yes. And I am Che, the Hurricane Cheney, and one half mm-hmm. of the dynamic duo that makes up the Champav Show. show. <laughs> uh, Pab, yes, it's 100. We're here to celebrate. We're here to reflect. We're here to make a few connections to some of our favorite episodes and see if the learning then still resonates now or how has our thought process changed. Mm-hmm. But even more than that, you and I have not had any conversation about what we have deemed to be our personal favorites. Yeah, and, and you're right about that. We haven't. Uh, you you peaked a bit, but then you immediately turned over the page when you realized that my uh, my favorites uh, were listed there. And, and I wanted to say, um, rather than use the word favorites, I think I'd rather use the most impactful. Ooh. Yeah. So I, I, we don't like to use that word favor, no, right? No. Favorite or best is vernacular to drop in the name of inclusivity. That's right. And so all, I love all of the episodes that we have done because they have all fostered our growth over the last 2.5 years. Uh, but some of there have been some standout episodes that have really impacted my growth and I think our growth as as uh, as teachers uh, and and perhaps as podcasters, you know, people who are on the social media scene. Um, so there's definitely there's definitely a couple of episodes in here that uh, that I'd like to talk about as being, you know, some of our standouts or some of the things that have uh, stood out to me at least in the last. Uh, 100 episodes. Pav, a couple great things you brought up there. Yes, we've tried to really change our vernacular, or our vernacular has been changing as we've become more enlightened uh, through knowledge and growth. And you know, we cut out uh, the best, mm-hmm. uh, that vernacular. And then we had a conversation about whether favorite was really still implying the same, that this was my favorite, this was the best. And so I think... Um, I don't think, I know we had decided that we're cutting out the vernacular, this is the best, or this is a must listen to. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, no. And, and, and by implying that something was the best, actually, 
just alienates everyone else. So we don't go with the best. And then we connected that to favorite. And so we made the assertion, you know, we're going to drop the vernacular favorite. So I'm glad you reaffirmed that this conversation is really about impactful or one mm-hmm. of our favorite buzzwords right from the beginning was inspirational. Mm-hmm. And as you spoke, Pav, I thought about, you made that comment, you know, some episodes, you know, have more value. And I wouldn't necessarily say they have more value. I might argue some of our episodes have stood the test of time like many of our lessons in the classroom, some lessons are still great lessons four or five or 10 years past. They don't necessarily just have to be discarded because they are merely old is the only qualifier for whether something is valuable or not. Mm-hmm. Some of our episodes, I think, are be, have become outdated. Some of them became outdated in weeks yeah. based on the environment in which we taught it in, in, in regards to the entire world, what yeah. was going on, what we were seeing. Um, I can think of my sort of, uh, one interlude where I talked about, you know, the system worked well. It was a perfect mess, I called it. But then I can think of the George Floyd scenario and I go back and say, ooh, that's a cringeworthy episode because I wouldn't actually take the same position anymore. Mm-hmm. And so our world around us changes the, the validity of some of those episodes. And I think, I, I know that my episodes, why I've picked them is they still have value now that I would still say, hey, Go check out this episode, or I would recommend, or I would suggest, um, because I think they still withstand, you know, uh, scrutiny based on what's going on today. And Mm -hmm. so I think I'm going to guess that yours are the same thing, that that impactfulness also comes with still having validity, having strength. Yeah. And and even beyond that, um, some of the topics that have really uh, inspired me, that was a perfect word. Um, or changed me as an educator, as a teacher. I can go back and take a look at some of those uh, episodes that we have done that have really changed the way that I do things in my in in our classrooms, right, in our schools. Um, and so that that I think is worthy of mention because uh, as you talk about uh, Che, you you mentioned some of your interludes and and one in particular that was a bit cringeworthy or whatever you know, might, whatever might be for some of your ep- uh, episodes or some of our episodes. And that's definitely the case for myself as well. Um, but part of the reason why we started the Staff Room podcast was to chronicle or document our growth over time. And maybe that wasn't our intention right at the very beginning. Um, but as we sort of went through a couple of episodes and and then reached came closer to 50 we we started to see that this this was a really great opportunity for us to in the future go back to and see how much we have grown um in in the grand scheme of things two and a half years really isn't that much time especially when we think about how long the 35 years combined teaching experience that you and I have a two and a half years of learning experience doesn't seem like a lot but for myself it's probably the most exponential growth that I have experienced as a teacher and so um, just going back to look as as we were getting ready for this episode I scrolled back all the way to episode one And in doing so, I found a bunch of gems in there that I had forgotten about, a bunch of episodes that I was like, oh, yeah, we talked about this. I totally forgot that we had talked about this. And uh, and so it was really nice to go back and listen to a couple of things and see, you know, where we were at a certain point in time and uh, and see how far we've come since then. So huge journey, lots of learning that we have done. And uh, and yeah, we're really excited to talk about some of the some of those most impactful episodes that uh, that we've had over the past uh 100 episodes. You know, I really want to get to an anecdote, but you keep bringing up these great points that have me jotting down comments uh, about, you know, our podcast and what's been going through. And I, and I started to, jo- to think about this is real documentation of what teacher growth really looks like. Mm-hmm. When you talk about action research and you talk about documentation and how can you see it and how can it be uh, seen by others, this podcast, this space is real action research for the evolution of a teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the type of evolution that we constantly talk about, but do we ever see it? Do we actually see it in a space? And I actually, I become increasingly proud of the work because this is real action research. This is really stepping in and being able to see the progress and the evolution of a teacher. And, and, and I, I love to fixate on teacher. 
Mm-hmm. There's so many valuable roles in education. And you know, one of my, you know, I go off topic slightly, is this vernacular, I'm an educator. No, no, tell me exactly what you are. Because I, I value the administrator. I value the office staff. I value the custodian. I value the, the teaching assistant. I'm going to forget someone in my list here. I value every component of education. And when you say educator, I get a little like, wait, are you trying to ascend that you, that you own expertise in all fields? I'd rather you just tell me what it is that you are specifically in the space so we can have that really rich conversation. And so we never attest to know anything about administration. We're not administrators. We don't call ourselves educators. I'm a teacher. And so under the umbrella of educator, I'm very, we are very specific with who we are and what we represent in that space. And so I think of the Staff Room podcast and I reflect back, it's certainly evolved, Pav. We were so just raw in the moment with no preparation. Sometimes I wish we could go back and, and, and podcast like that. We, we've changed a little bit. We evolved and probably for the better. But sometimes when you're saying, I, sometimes I miss just teaching all week and then deciding at the last second, what do you want to talk about and doing a podcast on it? Although we're still very similar, but there's still a little bit more intentionality, maybe trying to be a little bit more responsive to the community and realize mm-hmm. that there is a staff room or a chain path community. There's a space. There's a handful of teachers that connect and feel that they want to hear about that teaching experience. And I think we take that obligation, that responsibility, that moral responsibility to be a little bit more intentional with our work. Just before you get into the anecdote, which we will get to very soon, uh, Che, you said a very, very strong word, which was responsive. Um, I think that in, in education altogether, that responsiveness is is so important. And uh, I don't think that you and I would be where we are if we were not being responsive to the needs of education, the needs of students, the needs of community, and not just the community that we teach in, but as you mentioned, uh, our listening community. And we really have built a phenomenal, and not that we have built, I mean, collectively, we have built a phenomenal community of learners um, in the Twitter space, in, in, in the podcasting world. And I think that we've all really learned from one another. And, and that is a form of responsiveness, listening to each other, listening to what the needs are and acting on, on those needs in whichever way we possibly can. Mm. And so this, uh, this idea of responsiveness is, I think, um, probably a very key teaching for myself uh, over the last two and a half years and, and just looking back in my entire career, you know, when, when have I been most responsive? And I would probably say it's been in the last little while of teaching just because I think I am so much more aware of, uh, of, of the needs that are around me and what I can do to provide for those needs. And so um, I think that's a key word and I like that word a lot. There's been an involvement. When we just started, it was literally just us. Yeah. And then we've been validated and honored. And I don't want to start listing off all the spaces that we're connected with. And all of a sudden, you're right. You become responsible to that entire community that has elevated us to a space where we know our voice is heard. And although we reference being just teachers, um, we still have a space. There's still there's there's we have some access points to to get that teacher stories and those experiences heard. And I think we take it seriously, which is why we always advocate that we're teachers Mm -hmm. because that's the voice in the stories that we can tell. That's our lived experience. Pav, before we get to that promised anecdote, before, (laughs) one more time, one more. When I was going back, because you referenced going back to previous episodes and I did on the Cringeworthy, but I went back and I realized that we have been doing our episodes in a pandemic since episode 31, which is a vastly superior percentage of our episodes. And I didn't ponder that at first. I sort of figured they'd be around 50-50. You know, half our content must be pre-COVID. And I think, actually, no, almost exclusively, our content is during, or I want to say post-COVID, but I guess we're not post. We're still in this pandemic. Almost all of our content is in that space. Mm. That's very interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize it was episode 31. I, I, like you, figured it was around 50 Episode 31, oh. we recorded Friday night on the March break before we went off for two extra weeks. Oh my gosh. That's uh, almost eerie. And we'll be right back with our anecdote. And you're listening to The Chain Pav Show. 
gave me just enough time to catch my breath. And let's get into an anecdote path to cue up this, uh, the culmination of the Staff Room Podcast and the birth of the Chain Pav Show. That's and right. This topic is not new, Pav. I don't know if you recall this, but we actually planned this episode yeah. in January of the new year. It was supposed to be the follow-up episode to the one word. We were like, this is the new year. We'll do the one word, and then we're going to do a recap of the year. And you and I are going to pick our three favorite, we would have said favorite back then, episodes and have a conversation about it. And I don't know what happened. Actually, I I can make up a story now. You weren't ready. You weren't prepared. Oh, please. And so I had to come up with something at the last second. And I would just, and that's what happened. But this content, this, 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 this plan wasn't for the 100th. This plan was for New Year's. And it just, you know, what in teacher's life, something goes on, a mm-hmm. new idea, something fresh. And we never came back to it. We had it in our back pocket for a long time. Remember we were going to do this comparison episode where we would all just, you and I would go off on our own, come back and have a little conversation about what we thought were the most impactful of our episodes? Well, now is the time. We said 100, pivoting, twirling, switching, diving into the chain path space. Let's do it now. And we're ready. So are we going to address this elephant in the room, the switch from the Staff Room podcast? You can address the elephant. I'm just giving this elephant stink eye and hoping he gets the (laughs) message out, out, hey, out. It's just like dealing with a kitty cat, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you know what? Talk about the elephant. No, I'll talk about the elephant. <laughs> is this the one on this binder or is that the one also oh, the binder over here? My or the, notebook. Actually, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's elephants all over the place in here. <laughs> there are. All right, Pav, talk about the elephant in the world. The, the, the world? There's elephants in the world. Tell us about the elephant in the room. <laughs> I'll slow it down a little bit. So, yeah, we've, we've sort of, uh, we've decided to transition at episode 100. There's a few changes coming. So let's see if you notice what some of them are uh, in the world of Che and Pav. So, yes, we have pivoted, twirled our, our podcast from the Staff Room podcast to the Che and Pav show. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the, the name Che and Pav is very, recognizable in many spaces and and it sort of allows us to streamline sort of our content across spaces because a lot of people are confused between the staff room podcast and the drive and some of the other things that we are working on and so uh you know are those the same people oh we're not entirely sure it looks like them perhaps it is uh so that's one area and then also our conversations have taken us way outside of the staff room those conversations are not solely happening in one single space anymore. Those, those conversations are happening, happening everywhere, all over the place. And so we just thought it was a little bit more fitting to take ourselves out of the staff room and, uh, and, and take those conversations wherever we are. And uh, that's what we've been doing actively. And so here's our change. We waited till episode 100 and we made the shift to the Chain Path Show. And two other things, Pav, not even other, just a part of that rich story is that, you know, not everyone has a positive association with the staff room. Mm-hmm. There are many teachers that articulate the staff room as a toxic space, yeah. a space they don't want to frequent. And we thought, you know what, let's, as we've sort of expanded and grown and, and been able to elevate and take our voices to different spaces, conferences, uh, giving presentations at their school, that you're right, the staff room no longer seemed fitting. It, it was almost, when you talk about modeling for your students, demonstrating the power of your voice and when you and when you put it out there it's a risk and and we've had our you know our missteps or our people that have you know tried to take us out but in the long run by taking those steps it's manifested great growth and so it does become sort of your model text for students this is why you do dive into the the social media space or you put yourself out there and you apply for courses or resumes or you take your resume and you go for uh, workshops, etc., because you put yourself out there, and sometimes you get land, you land those positions. Other times you don't. Mm-hmm. But I think, Pat, that was a great uh, part of it. And that add number two, <clears throat> the domain name's a lot cheaper, eh? The domain name is a lot cheaper. We don't need to have. No one's rushing to two. take the chainpath.com. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> no one wants that. But the staff room, that's a little costly. The, the staff room <laughs> is costly. a little bit more costly. Uh, chainpath show was much cheap. Uh, chainpath was much cheaper. <laughs> yeah, chainpath.com, a whole lot cheaper than the staffroom.com. All right, Pav, uh, let's get into it because we've now spoke for 20 minutes and some people will say about nothing. <laughs> but if you What's do, wrong with that? <laughs> 
well, this is this is this is this could be hallway talk, right? In That's the morning, right. You come back. I just had a great conversation. What was it about? I, I, don't, know. I, don't, I don't know. know but I feel better. Yeah. But I feel better coming out of the combo. <laughs> so we know we've done that for you. Well, That's at least right. some of you. All right, Path. Uh, I got three. Yeah. You got three, and I know we've got sort of like the in the bullpen. Mm. Sports Ooh, analogy. In the bullpen. I never <laughs> use sports to talk about teaching. Eh? Remember that? No, Che never uses Oof. sports. All right, Pav, uh, who goes first? Um, always me. Does that change with the Che and Pav show? Well, f- f- well, you'll see when you well when you read the fine print of the contract I made you sign, <laughs> okay. then we'll find out. All right, Pav, you go first. Yeah. All right. So, uh, my my number one that I have, and there's no order to any of these. They are equally impactful. Uh, I couldn't put an order on these, but um, I'm going to start with episode 88, which was learning loss, uh, and uh, this was a topic that was starting to trend around the time that we recorded episode 88. Uh, and it wasn't too long ago, but if it seemed like it was just blowing up at the time. And uh, we felt that we needed to tackle it from our perspective and discuss it from what we had seen, which was pretty much on par with what most teachers, most educators were feeling at the time, um, that this this idea of learning loss was starting to spring up everywhere. And the idea of learning loss being that students had missed out on a whole bunch of teaching that has happened and they need to be caught up um, very quickly so that they don't lose any of that learning over the course of, you know, the year and a half, two years that they would have missed of school. And so we really felt like, no, we need to contend this. And a lot of people were at the time um, just talking about how, no, no, there's no, there's no learning loss necessarily. There's a loss of perhaps some areas of the curriculum, but who's to say, uh, firstly, that it is a loss because who are we comparing it to? Um, and then we're not considering all the gains that have been had over the past year and a half or during the pandemic. And so, uh, we sort of, tackled that subject of learning loss. And I thought that that was a great conversation. Um, a lot of impact and a lot of, uh, a lot of response from listeners, uh, during that time. And it also led to a few other connections, uh, for myself. Um, the, the idea of teacher loss actually sprung from our conversation of learning loss because we were focusing solely on students when we were talking about learning loss, but you know, there's, there's a whole lot of educators, a whole lot of teachers that have missed out on really, um, really powerful teaching experiences during that year and a half, two years that they've missed out on. And so that was a conversation that sort of segued from learning law. So for me, I would say, uh, one of my three episodes, uh, is going to be episode 88 learning loss. Oh, I wasn't ready for that choice. No, no, okay. I'm willing. I, I thought of, of my three that two of them for sure would be in yours. And uh, well, now I need to go two for two. Another baseball analogy uh, <laughs> to get that two for three. That was a great episode. I'm going to give you a little pushback. We didn't follow the trend on that one. We were early. OK, some of our content, um, some of our content were reactionary. And some of our content, I can tell you where we were way ahead of it. Yeah. And the learning loss vernacular was something we were way ahead of. And I say that with poignancy because it's become a little bit of a point for me because now I look to see who's leveraging the term of learning loss to supplement and build their persona, their narrative. And Pav, I'm going to jump and go on a little mini rant here is that, you know, when you talk about learning loss, this is not a, a, equal across everything, across all students, because, you know, Pav, you and I teach in mm. uh, marginalized communities, communities that are identified for lower scoring, more needs, higher, higher needs to more needs for higher resources. I don't want to trivialize the community and I don't want to talk in a deficit lens, but it's a marginalized community that gets an abundance of other resources. And we talked about the fact that as much as there's been great growth in our community, is it equal or parallel to the growth of more affluent communities. Mm. And we came to some pretty good, uh, I wouldn't say conclusions. I'm not, def- I don't have empirical data, but anecdotal with friends and, and other administrators that, that teach in these schools, that in fact, they just simply bridged the gap 
even further. There was almost no twirling or pivoting. All the resources were in place. Uh, a lot of the methodologies and pedagogies were in place. Teachers knew how to teach in these spaces. Their schools were able to manifest and hold on to resources. Our schools were pillaged. Mm-hmm. rightfully so, to get uh, tech and, and stuff out to our community. And then there's a long time to get it back and reinvest it. And teachers didn't know all the tech. So I look on this learning loss as who's speaking of learning loss? Because if you're learning loss, but you're speaking, talking, speaking from a point of a top two or three school, I don't think you should be talking about learning loss. I think you should be talking about how your schools and your communities can be sending back and helping back to schools that may have grown, but haven't grown at the same rate. But yeah. I think you use learning loss because you don't want to deal with an issue that you could deal with in your building you talk on these trivial matters that everyone goes oh five thousand likes because you don't like learning loss in your school oh pause yourself pause yourself if that's the issue you should be worrying about because you've advanced so much further in this hierarchy this hierarchies we always contend to want to destroy but we never can and and, and don't seemingly do uh uh, this learning loss gets me fired up path because i look around at who gets all the accolades for uh pr- destroying the myth of learning loss. But then I look a little further into where you're coming from. And, and if you're in one of these upper echelon schools, you, learning loss isn't really what you should be worried about. I contest that you've ascended far further and you've created a greater gap despite everyone's growth, mm-hmm. exponential growth. So what are you doing to give back? How is your school manifesting resources back to these schools that had to give out so many resources to their community? And if you aren't doing that, then I don't want to hear about you talk about learning loss. Folks, Che rants are still a part of the Che and Pav show. So uh, there's still going to be many more of those, I'm sure. That was a really great one. Uh, I'm going to add one more tiny piece that sort of came to me as you Mm -hmm. were talking about that. Um, I think that the only place where learning loss exists is is in some of those highly privileged and affluent schools because now you've got families who are uh, getting private tutoring for for their children um perhaps and uh, and now you are you are actually creating a situation where if everybody in the school isn't keeping up with you know the joneses then uh then there are going to be some students in that area or in that school that are not up to par with the other students that are getting the private tutoring and so now you are creating a situation of learning loss because you've created that gap uh, falsely, mm-hmm. that gap has been falsely created among those students, and so you're you're putting the pressure on families to get them caught up the- to the other students in that school where where it's just been a, a falsified creation of learning loss in the first place. Very false uh, narrative. Yes. Over this idea that uh, COVID and this pandemic has even the playing field in education. I mm. would actually argue mm. it's only furthered the it's, gap. Yep. All right, Pat, that was a great choice. Yeah, so I'm, I'm anxious to hear what your first one is that you're going to be talking My about. My first choice is actually going to be your interlude oh. on your name. Oh. And oh. despite all the many conversations about getting names right and pronouncing it right, um, you, your interlude on that topic, an old one, is also really poignant and also one of those way ahead of the curve interludes. And what makes it powerful isn't so much the point of, I I want my name spoken right. It was all the internal struggle that you went through, sort of self-identifying, being comfortable, choosing how you wanted to be identified, and how it landed on you. And that, um, you can tell me if I'm wrong, you can always tell me if I'm wrong, but you talked about how Pav isn't necessarily your name, Mm -hmm. Pavan, Mm -hmm. but you came to appreciate Pav in how the teacher showed appreciation and caring in how they delivered that name. And so sort of tone and intent mattered. And so it was really interesting to me, despite knowing something, to actually really learn something. And I learned about your name, but I also learned about the vast complexities of how students deal, cope, self-actualize, self Actual lot. Never mind. You got it. Edit that out. We Pause. all got it. No, I should just push <laughs> the button. Um, I just found that of such value um, for me personally. Yeah. And thus as an educator. So I knew right from the time, like this one I've been holding on to even for the four months since January, I always knew this would be one. Is mm. your interlude 
on your name for all the subtle nuances and complexities beyond the simple talking points that we all fixate that we have to make sure we get students names right yes we do but there's more to it mm-hmm. and, and you you highlighted all of that so beautifully in that interlude so that's one of my three. Oh, I'm very touched, Che. I didn't expect that at all. But uh, thank you for uh, throwing that one to me. Um, yeah, that was that was a very meaningful um, interlude for myself, and 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 it it sort of was birthed out of you know hearing on uh, social media all of that conversation about making sure that you get uh, uh, students names right and i think there were a few situations that sort of irked me a little bit um even if it was you know those couple of posts or tweets or whatever where where teachers had mentioned even if the te- the student says it's okay or i would rather be called uh this even if this, the student says this, you should still pronounce it, uh, you know, the way that it should be pronounced. Well, I, I push back on that a little bit because there's there's a lot that that comes with names and there may be trauma there. There may be some something that really causes students to say, no, I, I really do not want all of this attention. Please, please, please just call me what I'm telling you to call me. And I'm honestly really fine with it. And I think that is really hugely a part of social and emotional well-being. And, um, and, and if a student is insistent, um, please don't push please don't push. Just give them that space that they need. And when they are ready to come around, uh, like myself in late adulthood, maybe they will. And even still, um, Che, you can attest to this. When I introduce myself, I often revert back to uh, the same pronunciation of my name that teachers had given me when I was in grade school, um, just like very intuitively. That's mm-hmm. just what I do. And then so sometimes I, I I kind of read the room and I have to say, okay, I think that I'm in a safe enough space for me to use the correct spelling. I know that sounds so silly, but this is something that I have grown up with and lived with my entire life. And and I'll use my name when I'm ready and I feel safe enough to do so. And so um, I think that many students are there. And, uh, and I think that we should uh, respect and honor that as much as we can. So Those things that push your button or come underneath that, uh, the idea of sometimes teacher, educator arrogance to think they know better because they're the teacher. Mm. Um, and it's not solely your time to tell when, you know, the, I, you were talking about name. I always make the connection to relationships. You know, it's relationships first. Whoa, pause there, teacher. Pause there, educator. You're in such a position of power. Do you know how easy it is for you to say, now's the time I'm going to form a good relationship? What have you done beforehand to facilitate a space that is ready for the student to say, you know what, I'll gift you a relationship. And your story to that reminds me of the same thing. I, the teacher, have decided that I will pronounce your name as it is supposed to be pronounced as of now without any consideration for how you are comfortable with it landing. Mm-hmm. And maybe it takes some time. You like you talk about maybe there's some trauma be- trauma behind it. And I made that connection to relationship. It's always teaching educators saying relationship first. Well, I know students will probably say it, but you don't. You your your position positional power is when you think you can decide when the time is to form relationships. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Doesn't sound so student centered to me. No, but you know what it does speak to uh, all of this, all of this conversation that we're having is that keyword of responsiveness that we've talked about before. You know, Mm. how responsive are we being to what our students actually need versus what we think that they need? And so that is uh, that I think that goes back to that conversation. So thank you, Che, for uh, bringing up that uh, the name interlude. Should we get ready for number two? Absolutely. All right, let's get it ready for that. You're listening to The Chain Pav Show. All right, so number two, toxic positivity. Yes, fist pump, I knew it. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Did you have that in your that's, list? That's my Ric Flair. Woo! 
That's a good one. That's, that's my pad flare. Woo! <laughs> oh, I like that. Let's I keep that in the show. I thought you that. <laughs> yes. I had that one. I had. And, Did you have that one too? I, All oh, right. So, well, I, I, sorry, I've given up. I knew you were going to have that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Episode 63 of the Staff Room Podcast was Toxic Positivity. And let me tell you, this one, we, we were like... Probably about two months before we actually recorded episode 63. Uh, I remember you, I was, I was in the car waiting for my kids at jujitsu and you're like, we got to do this episode. And I was like, I, I don't think we're ready yet. I think we need to wait. I think we need to know a little bit more. We need to get the right angle on this. Uh, we need to figure out what about toxic positivity we really want to talk about. And, uh, and, and, and it was one of those episodes where like when we did, it was like, it was catharsis because it was just everything that we had learned, everything that we had seen in regards to toxic positivity, um, anything that we wanted to negate about the whole idea of it. We were able to just let loose and it was such a great conversation. And one that, like you mentioned at the beginning of the show today, uh, has really stood the test of time because that is one that uh, listeners keep coming back and back to. And we keep hearing about, oh, your episode on toxic positivity, that was spot on. And um, and although we have grown a, lot, grown a lot since that episode, and we actually have some more insights about toxic positivity since episode 63, it was, it hit all of these major points that we had about the whole idea of it and uh, and sort of we really were able to tackle it in very in-depth and uh, were able to provide anecdotes with what we had seen and also ways that we could potentially see it in our classrooms and how to address it when we did. So that, that was the second one for me. Yeah, I'm going, I'll just check off because I have the same one as well. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's one of our most listened to. It's over a year old and it still is relevant because most people talk still with a completely low resolution understanding of toxic positivity because it's a leverage space. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of many progressive, uh, liberal minded arguments is that once you decide to take one, you don't feel obligated to bother to learn them with any depth because you have a position that most people aren't comfortable or in a position to challenge. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you do articulate um, what the, the counter position might be, the people that attest these positions, they, they drift into Nowheresville because they haven't bothered to take the time because they've never had to take the time mm -hmm. because they have this, oh, this, I have this high leverage argument. It's very progressive. No one's ever going to be able to call me on it, so I won't bother to learn it, but I'll throw it out there all the time. Uh, and we smashed it. Uh, and we did smash it, Pav. And I remember our conversation because, you know, we got called on being toxically positive. Now, in hindsight, it wasn't. <laughs> and I could actually, now in hindsight, if I were to take this person on now, I would obliterate them. Not that my job is to obliterate people in the social media space, <laughs> but um, I would go back and I wouldn't be, I, I was pretty kind about it, but I, I was just like, it was what sparked to say, we've got we've to know our stuff because as any good teacher or any good person, you know, don't shoot your mouth off till you know you got your stuff wired tight. And I didn't have my stuff wired tight back then. So I absorbed it mm -hmm. and I was very polite in the conversation. I didn't, I didn't believe it at the time and I certainly don't believe it now. Um, but it made me, and you and I think. And so when we went into that episode, it might be the episode that took the most amount of planning. Because yep. every time, like, we're ready. You're like, we're not ready, Che. We're not ready. No, I'm ready. <laughs> and you're like, we're not ready. We've got to figure this out. And, and you're right. We've brought up some great points. There's no episode more talked about. Yeah. More people behind the scenes. And it was funny is that there was never, this has opened my eyes to how many people are going to criticize our content based solely on a title. Mm -hmm. just on the title. And so all the people that wanted to take a shot at us on toxic positivity for being toxically positive hadn't bothered to invest any time to listen to the episode to know what our points were and still came after us. I said, this is, this is your low resolution understanding that you can't even accept that we're challenging it, but you, you won't bother to listen to it, but you'll challenge it. Um, it, was, it was a real fire starter. And I always come, Pat, there's so many great points to come back, is that ultimately, it comes back to our space, how often do we see it? And I still attest to, I actually don't see toxic positivity in my school very often. Mm -hmm. It really is a social media made-up conundrum. And you brought up the great point, social media is to be social, positive, 
pleasant. Highlight best practice. Share some great things. You know when I go to a baseball game, you know what I expect to see? Baseball. And if I saw a football game, I'd say, what's going on? Um, <laughs> so if you go into social media and you're uh, like uh, outraged, you're seeing positive stuff. Okay. <laughs> and then I go, then, then my second thing would be, you know how the algorithms work? Because this was the funny thing. Oh, I keep seeing all this toxic positivity stuff. You want to know why you see all this positive stuff? Because it's all you look for. The algorithms are smarter than us human beings. They know your trends. They know what you're searching. So don't pretend that you're being inundated with positive. Sorry, you're being inundated by looking for positive stuff. And then, of course, Pat, this oh, gets me fired up. Is that toxic positivity? And this, I, I can make a link to our imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. imposter experience, um, because toxic positivity actually can be diagnosed. By clinical psychologists. So if you're an educator in that space diagnosing something as, as toxic positivity, are you diagnosing this as a clinical psychologist backed and studied and with a degree that even su- would even suggest that you know the topic? Or do you just feel that because I'm a teacher, I can do it? Which also reminds me of the self-help area. There's a space for people to offer self-help, but it's not me because I'm not trained in that. So I'm very careful and mindful of how the group self-help or trying to give people all these worldly things they should do. And toxic positivity falls under the same vernacular. Mm-hmm. Sorry, are you a clinical psychologist? Because you're talking about toxic positivity as if you're an expert. I don't think you are. This, this, this is clinically diagnosed, unlike imposter experience, because it's not mm-hmm. syndrome, which ultimately people can identify because it's not clinically recognized. Right. And toxic positivity actually is so be mindful when you go out there and making accusations because sorry are you studied enough are are you wise enough to actually make this accusation are you even aware of these details and this would come back it is low resolution and it's also a leverage point right like it's it's people can use terminology like this to leverage and to gain power in particular situations because when you throw out a, a it's almost like an insult Oh, you're being toxically positive and all of a sudden, um, you know, it's hard to climb out of the the hole that's been created for you because you've been labeled as being toxically positive. So it does become a, a big leverage point. And then and then the conversation becomes, well. Who are we seeing that is leveraging it? Are they are they people that are already in in uh, in upper echelons of the hierarchy, um, or are they the people that are that are trying to cling on, um, you know, to stay relevant, to 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 gain voice, to try and be amplified? Well, I would say that it's more of the people that are trying to hold on to the power. We, you and I, went back and we looked at all these folks that came after us uh, over a year ago. And I said, you know what, Pat? He's like, since then, a year ago, we'd never given a presentation. We weren't on Voicehead Radio. We weren't on uh, Ed Can's advisory board. Uh, and I look back, and all those teachers, and no, no, they're not all teachers. All those educators are all still doing the same thing, hunting down people on uh, the social media space to tell them they're toxically positive, while ascending and showing no, as I like to say, we're the receipts. I want to see some receipts uh, to something else you're up to. I don't see it. So that, that makes me wonder now, are we using, are we using labels like this to keep people down? A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, that's something to well, think about. Well, maybe not a hundred. Ninety-seven percent. That's fair. It's about, it's, it's because, you know, underneath everything is positional power. Yeah. And it's about hierarchy. Yeah. And we keep, we, you know, we, we got to do an episode on hierarchy. Everyone wants to crush the hierarchy, but no one does anything. Everyone does everything to manifest their space in the hierarchy or their ascension in the hierarchy. And what's the easiest way to elevate? take people out and keep them down that's right uh toxic positivity that's a great episode it was a great episode and it's one that i've gone back to listen to and and you're right it was one of the most talked about episodes uh Lots of people have come back to us, um, hearing it on multiple multiple platforms too. It's one of it's one of our episodes that's actually on YouTube. <laughs> so <laughs> very very few people go in depth on what toxic positivity is. That's right, because you said it. They get that leverage point. It's an easy talking point. Very few people are comfortable or confident to talk their way out of it when it's been accused of them. And so I don't need to look it up with in depth because I got you just with that. Well, you don't got you don't got us. Yes. <laughs> and, and if you feel like you begot, let us know because. Because, you know, Pat, like I circle full circle is that we made this argument is that ultimately what's really out there is toxic productivity. Mm, that's right. The toxicity of people that are overly productive. And, and, and maybe that's not the negative or the demands that come from the system to ensure that you maintain yourself as being uh, overly productive, which reminds me, you may not remember, you were uh, quoting a podcast 
mm-hmm. you were just re- recently listening to, and you talked about a quote in related to product. Do you remember it? You wrote it down somewhere. It's probably one of your elephant books. Yeah. The Brene Brown uh, podcast you were listening to, and you had a, a sequence on oh. on productivity. It may come to you, but it, it did. Oh, it's right behind you, my, oh, book, my oh. elephant book. Let me grab it. You, you grab well, that. Hold on. Hold on a second. I got something that will fill the void. You're listening to The Chain Pav Show. Oh, I'm glad we put in those bumpers. Uh, you were listening to a podcast episode, and it was a Brene Brown, and you had quoted, you'd made the quote down on how we fixate on people's productivity as this great skill to have. And ultimately, we thus make it toxic, that we gauge people, we assess people by their level of productivity, which in essence makes it potentially toxic when people feel they have to work at such a... Uh, astute level in order to gain acceptance or praise and uh, we know we talked about that that that's more of a real thing to worry about in your building who's taxing you to be more productive and and who's flaunting their productiveness and then had this self-analysis of is it toxic or not like as a teacher I think about teachers that go out of their way and they buy their own resources and they buy their own books and and that's wonderful and then they start to share on social media that I bought all these books that's wonderful do that puts a lot of pressure on other teachers to say you got to use your own personal resources to buy books in order to facilitate a good reading program. So you can't be a great teacher unless you're spending your own money outside mm-hmm. of school reading and buying books. Whoa, pause, really? That mm-hmm. sounds kind of toxic to me to put that type of pressure on your your peers and your professionals. Yeah. I did not find the quote because oh. that was an Elephant Journal Volume 1. Oh, okay. And this one is Volume 2 that I have over here. But but you covered the essence of the quote very uh, perfectly in that uh, and we in education, I would say that this is probably what we see more of rather than the toxic positivity. Uh, it's that toxic productivity where those expectations are being put on us as educators to just do more and more and more without taking anything else off of our plates. And therefore, we create a situation that we cannot possibly keep up with. Um, and uh, and all that does is is make us look like some sort of heroes to our colleagues, our co- counterparts, who then you know begin to dislike each other because this is what they are seeing others you know be able to do, and uh, and that that creates a very toxic environment. And so um, that was the the gist of that conversation. But yes, definitely part of part of us not being ready to record that episode was this, uh, this idea that there was something here, there was something we were missing. And it was that piece, the toxic productivity piece is like, no, toxic positivity is not a thing that we see as much. Um, It is a thing, but it's not what we see. What we see is this idea of toxic productivity. And that was something that we needed to uh, really discuss and bring to the table. As teachers, it's great to hear all these these theories and these things, but do, do they manifest in the spaces we're teaching in? Although when we talked about imposter experience, that was something that's actually more applicable to the classroom. Mm-hmm. But that's not our actual topic today. Uh, Pav, I think it's almost time for a commercial. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it is time. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll lead us into commercial because we've got a very, very important sponsor this week. <laughs> I'm sure we do. And you're listening to The Chain Pav Show, brought to you by Pencil Sharpeners. Oh. When was the last time you had one in your class that worked? Get your- and you're listening to the chain path show i i haven't had a pencil sharpener that has worked in at least 10 years electric the oh. the, the spin runs you name it. It, it and if they do work they work for four minutes I was going to say, even the electric ones, because those, first of all, they cost so much money, but um, yeah, those are the best, but you're right. They break down really quickly. The turning ones, do they even install those in classrooms anymore? I don't know if they install them, but I know I ain't letting anyone take them out. 
Okay. <laughs> so you still have one. Yeah. They're a little rough. They're a little rough. Yeah. I just like, kids, don't worry. I'll, I'll try. And it, it, they butcher the pencil. It's just like, you need to bring in uh, 265 pencils per student per year. <laughs> yes. Just to it, just because you can't sharpen them and they can't, can't be sharpened anywhere. No, <laughs> there's nowhere to sharpen. So I'm really, help- I'm really glad this episode has been sponsored by pencil sharpeners because I've had nothing but great successes <laughs> with you. Thanks. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, we just need pens. Maybe that's all we need in our classroom. Someone's already going, don't you use Chromebooks? <laughs> you sometimes still need pencils. Of course. Yes. But we're not talking about this. Pav, we've got one more each on our list yeah. to wrap up this first episode mm-hmm. of the Chain Pav Show and episode 100 of the Staff Room Podcast with Chain Pav. That's right. All right, Pav. Um, do you want to lead this one off or do you want me to go first? No, you go first. Oh. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Let me look at my list and see if I can read my cursive. <laughs> I know my, my students can't. And, and rightfully so, because I can barely, I tell them, it's like, I, I better read it back to myself three seconds after I wrote it or I will not get it. <laughs> oh, oh, ooh, yes. Growth mm. mindset. Is it really equitable Mm. another great episode i thought still relevant still impactful the growth it reminds me of my previous argument the growth mindset vernacular is so easily adhered to it's so easily taken in to be used that you will use and you'll own it and of course growth mindset works in its best intentions but we had a great conversation about whoa 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 as a school, as a teacher, do you just thrust this uh, emotional responsibility on our students to have a growth mindset without changing any of your practices, without changing the way you teach, without changing the way you assess, without changing the way your schools look at data? If you haven't done any of those things yet, perhaps we shouldn't be giving the emotional burden on our students to say, it's okay to fail. Really? Is it okay to fail? Have we done anything to maybe even suggest that it's okay to fail? Or are we putting all the emotional burden that our students will adapt to new strategies and new methodologies and we take the easy route? Mm. And so it comes down to there's this this blind assumption, this magic trick that students either have a positive or neutral experience with schooling. And so growth mindset will work because even if it's neutral, you can do this. But I would even argue, even neutral, I don't know if I would agree to, oh, I think it's okay to fail. In fact, nothing in my schooling has ever taught me or given to me the idea that I've been rewarded for failure or productive struggle. Perhaps you should demonstrate that to me first before I give you this this change in my way of of learning when I haven't seen no change in the way you teach. Mm. And then certainly the extension is there are many students that come to school with a personal... uh, deficit lens, negative lens towards school, and one that's generationally entrenched. And I don't think that we should be thrusting upon students that have that type of experience with their schooling, the idea that we're going to make it okay for you to fail. In fact, they've been grossly punished for how they conduct themselves in group works or in, in how they've been punished for their, their work, etc. They don't have that, that level of, okay, I'll do this now. And I found the episode, Pat, why it became really funny for me is that there was a lot of pushback and this is where i gave the the joking vernacular that the only people that ever pushed back to us was uh high school teachers <laughs> english predominantly white uh i said th- th- this is the this is the space and it, it came out of this conversation because and when we talk about growth mindset is the people that push back the hardest Clearly hadn't bothered to, to listen to the content because they didn't pick out any of the nuanced arguments. They just stuck on the title of, is it really equitable? And felt that they had the easy argument, so they went on a, their tirade. And, and, I, and despite trying to not push back, but engage in conversation and direct them to the episode and direct them to some of our examples, they were never referenced again. And with the greatest level of fixed mindset were the growth mindset proponents Mm. that they couldn't even tolerate the title of our episode about challenging growth mindset that it brought such a fixed and negative response. I said, are you kidding me? You are the growth mindset expert and you can't even develop or demonstrate a growth mindset even enough to want to listen to the content before you rigidly challenge the content. Oh, I get it. Growth mindset is all about fixed mindset. And this is the problem when you think you have the winning argument 
It's mm-hmm. a, do you want to be right That's or right. do you have to be right? And the growth mindset often brings about a lot of I have to be right uh, responses and mentality. Growth mindset's important, but make sure you as a teacher, you as a grade, you as a division, you're doing the work. You're manifesting the changes first before you expect students to dive into this space because our collective education system hasn't done enough to build that level of trust to just put the emotional burden on students to manifest that type of learning. I don't even know what I could possibly say to uh, to add to what you just spoke about, about that episode. It was definitely a great one. And I remember all of that pushback that we received. And, and exactly like you said, it was all based on just what you see in the title. And we received a lot of it. It was, it was astounding the amount of pushback that we got just based on the title uh, without having to go in to listen to the episode. And so, yes, you're absolutely right. And, and I would argue argue that they are not uh, growth mindset experts. They are growth mindset advocates um, that clearly have not done all of the the legwork, especially surrounding equity and equitable teaching practices uh, in order to really utilize that argument effectively. And so uh, that that really is what we learned from that situation, that people are very much willing to um, to to make their argument without necessarily even feeling like they need to do any further research so so often you don't feel you need to when you hold on to the progressively accepted stance and position and argument because there's so few people that will challenge you or will push back to a pushback that you get to roam for free yeah. And this is something that uh, with students we've been talking about lately because we're writing persuasive essays, which will cul- culminate in a debate. And uh, and so what we've been learning through the process of, uh, of, of getting ready for our essays and for debate is that we must know what the other side is going to come at us with. And almost like a chess game, we have to be pre- prepared for our counter argument. Well, you can't be prepared for a counter argument unless you're aware of the argument. And so it's uh, it's very important to do the research on all sides, all perspectives, all fronts, so that you know uh, exactly where people are coming from. And I think that that is a major pitfall when it comes to these topics and not just growth mindset, but toxic positivity, imposter syndrome, learning loss, whatever it is that we are talking about, we must know all of the perspectives in order to adequately be able to um, agree with them or or disagree with them and and, you know, have our own positionality. So yeah, great, great choice there, Che. I cannot wait to see how you wrap this up because you had to have, um, actually, no, you, I thought, now before you pick your last one, I said I, I, I thought I was going to get two of the same. I counted on toxic positivity. I did count on you picking your name interlude. Oh, you did? Yeah, okay. I said these are going to be the two we double up. So before you reveal, I need it to be that, to win <laughs> this game. Uh, no, I have to say that it wasn't my name one. I, although I love my name uh, interlude, I think it's a great one. I just thought it would be kind of weird for me to pick something of my own. Um, as... I, w- I was. I'm gonna pause just for a second, Pep. I was. I was microaggressing. Yeah. I expected you to change your topic no. to name at the last second in order to facilitate a tie for me, no. as I was using my positional power. No, no, I don't do that with you. I know. I just, I'm just playing on some <laughs> vernacular here. I'm demonstrating some of my learning, my recent yes, learning on positional right. power and microaggressions. <laughs> but you did a good job. My microaggressions would work if you didn't macroaggress me all the time. Yeah, that's true. And I make that, you know what that reference is? That's a reference to our episode release poster for ah, this one. Oh, Let's get ready to rumble. Pab, let us know what's their final choice on your most impactful episode. I went with episode 53, SEL in math. Mm. Because there is probably no other area of the curriculum that I have had more growth in uh, than, than math and, and in particular social emotional learning within math. Because it is a new uh, part of the math curriculum here in Ontario. Um, It was something that we felt like we really needed to know more about and, you know, understand why all of a sudden SEL was being included in math. Um, But I have changed the way I teach math 
I have changed the way that I see math. I have changed the way that I see students and the way that they see math. Um, that has been probably one of the most impactful uh, episodes for me. For, for me, I don't even care about anybody else. It's just for me. It has been one of the most impactful because it has it has changed so much. I have so much more understanding, awareness, empathy for what students experience when it comes to uh, mathematical processes. And, and so this was definitely one of those, one of those situations. Uh, my practice has changed. Um, I've become so much more intentional about the way that I, that I run my math program and the way that I integrate it into so many other things. And just, uh, talking about the chain path perspective, um, it's one of our most, uh, successful presentations that we deliver, uh, in many conferences and to many, uh, districts and schools across North America, because this is a concept that is relatively new and, uh, and requires a lot more work. I think it requires diving deep. And so, um, it has been a really great one. It's one that, um, my former principal has actually even participated in. She has been in several conferences where she has listened to us, uh, present on this topic. And, uh, she has said to me each and every time I watch this presentation, I learn something new. And I feel the same way, even delivering the presentation at this point, we've delivered it so many times. So would I, would I deliver it again for Anessa? Yeah. Not for free. Not for free. <laughs> That's a joke. That's a Sinbad joke. That's a reference to a Sinbad joke. Would you do it again? Yeah, not for free, though. Not for free, though. <laughs> um, you're right. And uh, I tongue-in-cheek that because Nessa's been one of our biggest supporters. Yeah. And Pat, I love so many reasons you picked that because it ultimately does full circle on this entire episode because we end with the content was most valuable because it was most valuable to you as a teacher mm-hmm. resonating with our students, which is exactly how the podcast started. The audience was just us. Yeah. And your favorite episode connects back to that. That You know what? Maybe... Maybe it's not the most listened to. And actually, I was as you were talking, I was going to say, it's one of the episodes that's had the the greatest growth, the furthest away from the time it's released. That's mm-hmm. maybe a bit of a riddle. But I think people go back, and when people go back to our episodes, they do look for specific topics. Yes. And so that episode wasn't poorly received, but it went with sort of the norm. But then over time, it, it continues it to ascend and continues to grow. People go back. And SEL is one of those low resolution talking points where there's a real hunger for people to be high resolution. They want to know more. They don't, they want to know how they can embed SEL in their curriculum. And there's many ways that embedding in the math curriculum can manifest into, uh, the physical education curriculum, the science curriculum. So I think that's just a wonderful choice and sort of that, that full circle. And it it highlights sort of our, what our podcast journey has allowed us to do, gifted us to do is that two years ago, we weren't, we weren't giving presentations. Mm -hmm. No one was asking us to do presentations. We weren't doing Zooms in the United States. None of those things. No. And, and we've probably presented, I would say almost, almost 15 times, maybe more. I was going to say more, significantly more. And so this whole journey has been one of great growth. And you want to know who benefits? Well, we benefit. We, we, we definitely we benefit. benefit. Uh, and, and, and our learning opportunities in the space in which we teach, they benefit. Yeah. I, you know, at 20 years, I've always felt I get better. I have always felt I get better. But I think you've said this a few times. The last two years have been exponential. And how do I see it? Well, in the way I curate content in the class, which is probably why three years ago I would have said relationships before anything. And now I'm like, what do you mean relationship before anything? What do you think? How do you think you build a relationship with how you're going to teach? And I probably attest to that because I feel so confident now with how I am designing my lessons, Mm -hmm. curating content that I've realized this is the greatest way to forge a meaningful relationship, not with get to know you activities for six months. Exactly. <laughs> or as you would say, what is it that you're teaching that's not curriculum really? It's not that's a content. Right. It's not a standard. It's always been your, your stance. Yeah. Like almost everything can be connected to a standard or a curriculum or a learning skill. What is it? How, how is it that you build a relationship that's not connected to a standard? Exactly. But that's not today's topic. That's not today's. Well, it's one of many topics. Many topics. I actually, I had, I had two others on here that I didn't include, mm-hmm. but they were, they were part of my top five. Okay. Give me those two just by title name. Uh, imposter syndrome and learning skills. Oh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> imposter syndrome and learning skills I had. Okay. And then I actually had, as my extras, the drive 
the live broadcast oh. take a stand that we did. I didn't know that we could. No, you, uh, hey, I, just outside the box. <laughs> I didn't although know I, we were allowed although, to although think I can't outside. Stand the... that, I just can't stand that vernacular. What box it is that you are referencing? Or were you inside the box? I go deep, 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 deep inside the box yep, to come up with this right. one. The drive <laughs> on that day. That's almost that cheating. The... I don't know. The Co- this is called the Kobayashi Maru. Oh. And for our seven listeners that listen to Star Trek, they're like, oh, good one. Good one. You got her. <laughs> and for everyone else, like the Kobayashi what? Urgh, you have a Chromebook in front of you. Look it up. All right, Pav, should we wrap this up? Yeah, I think so. Almost a swag bag, but I think first a little gratitude and appreciation for everyone that has made the Staff Room Podcast, the Chan Pav Show, part of their space or part of their journey or part of what lifts them up and gets them going through the day. You, you are, like we say when we do the drive all the time, it's that energy that keeps us going. Everyone that interacts with us on Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn or all those guest bloggers that have come in and said, oh, I really love this content, boom, 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 or in the drive boxer that have shared their, their insights on episodes. We've never attested to be gatekeepers. We don't have some worldly knowledge that can't be found somewhere else. What are we? We're two active practitioners that are documenting our journey. And what increases and benefits our journey is the interaction with all of you folks. That That's where the learning is. This isn't the learning here. The learning manifests later. And so our growth is really a reflection of all the great wisdoms and insights and passions that you've gifted back to Pav and I on our journey on this podcast. Well said, Che. Uh, we've learned so much. We've uh, become better people. We've become better educators. We've become better community members, uh, friends, uh, colleagues. There are so many ways that we have become better. And this is all because of our community, the staff room community, and, uh, and just what we've gained. Um, and so we, we, do def- we definitely are very grateful for that. And we are definitely very grateful for the last 100 episodes because... Um, this is, this is a learning journey unlike any other I've ever had in my life. And I'm so, so thankful for it. Beautifully stated path. We don't have a swag bag per se, but I'll do a swag bag without any swag. I guess it's just a bag. <laughs> it's probably one of those ones from no frills that cost seven cents when you bought just one thing of iceberg lettuce. <sighs> what can you expect from us in the new year? Well, Pav and I have loved this journey of oral communication and oral storytelling and audio content, and we're going to continue to manifest in more and more presentations in the new year. Really excited to dive into some spaces again. We know we have Mass Q coming up, and really excited also to dive into some new spaces and hopefully mm-hmm. be able to present in some new areas and some new boards and some new districts. Also want to talk about maybe something a little exciting is Pav and I dive into a more formal written journey expect a couple of written publications from champ have maybe we'll release a little bit more details in a bit but rest assured that we are diving into that written content space and trying to create new ways to connect and new ways to document our journey um, I have one here also recently uh, partnering up more with Voice at Rodeo, Stephen Hurley, Ed Can to be on their advisory board for trying to connect Canadian educators across all different pillars from elementary to high school to college to university to figure out what is teaching in post-pandemic Canada going to be like and how are we supposed to unify all those sections of education. So we're really looking forward to that professional growth in that space. And of course, we will continue to bring the heat (laughs) as they say and so my final swag bag go back check out some of these episodes that Pav and I thought were our most impactful and if you find them impactful or if you find them less than impactful let's engage in some conversation or if you have any other episodes that you feel were more impactful than the ones that we talked about please let us know what resonated with you and why that was uh, your most impactful episode or most inspiring episode. And hey, why not write a blog and have it featured on the staffroompodcast.com? Ha ha, no, on chainpath.com. <laughs> <laughs> Did you mess that up? Not at all. And you've been listening to The Chain Pav Show. Episode 100. Thanks everybody for joining us. We'll see you next time for 101. <laughs>